plants show signs of communication and of learning, they produce and respond to many of the same neurochemicals as humans, including anesthetics. They share resources with one another, and when under threat, uh, emit war signals of warning and of pain. Today on Speaking Out of Place, we are joined in conversation with eminent Anishinaabe legal theorist John Burroughs and philosopher Paco Calvo to discuss how we might learn about, learn with, and learn from our plant companions on this earth. While Burroughs and Calvo both urge us to listen to the earth, during our conversation, we discovered that these two thinkers are often listening for different things. The discussion reveals fascinating points of difference and commonality. And in terms of the latter, the point both John and Paco insist upon is that we maintain our separation from other beings at our peril and at a loss. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the Creative Process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. First, I want to start by thanking both of you for your really beautiful work, which challenges so many pre-existing and damaging conceptualizations about the more than human world, but also about humans, ourselves, mm -hmm. what it means to have cognition, what it means to be organized, what it means to be intelligent. So perhaps, Paco, we could start with you describing to us some of the findings that have emerged from your work in the Mint Lab and the work of other plant scientists and philosophers who you work with, mm. work with profoundly challenges not only our ideas about plants and their intelligence, but also about what it means to be in intelligent and many of the biases and categories mm. that have been embedded in the category of intelligence itself. Actually, I think it challenges the work we do at the Minimal Intelligence Lab, as I say in the very title of the book, Planta Sapiens. I, when I say that by planta sapiens, I mean exactly the same that we might think that homo sapiens refers to, right? And I insist that I don't mean this as a metaphor, as a stylistic way of labeling the issue. It's because I truly believe that we are challenging the very conception we have of ourselves. So plants are sapient in the very same way we humans are sapient, right? On the one hand, the more we get to know about the way plants behave or about plant intelligence, the more we are able to rethink from scratch what we mean by human intelligence or human sentience, right? And when I say from scratch, I literally mean from scratch because I truly believe that this is very necessary, that we get started from scratch because we just don't get it. So say the skepticism towards the very idea of plant intelligence based on the fact that we can't quite picture who is at the wheel? So if you say, okay, but who is the little eye within a plant governing the way plants behave or how they grow, how they interact with their surroundings? Some people have the, the feeling that hopes. Plants cannot be intelligent. They cannot be doing anything intentionally because otherwise we should be able to picture, to visualize this agency, not this idea of somebody being at the wheel, at the driving seat, right? So to me, the easiest way to proceed is to question the very foundation that, that we have when it comes to human intelligence. Say, hold on a sec, what do we mean when you say that there is somebody at the wheel, at the driving seat in the case of humans, right? So plants being divided, being decentralized, I think that's the lesson number one we can take, that we are way less centralized, centralized than we think we are. So we are way more decentralized or we also apply a divide and conquer strategy the way plants do. 
we just don't realize because we have this illusion that our mental life fools us into thinking that there is somebody sitting there doing the driving, right? So to me, that's one of the most important challenges to understand that we are on the same page, plants and animals. Paco, the, the subtitle is The New Science of Plant mm. Intelligence. Yeah. When I hear new science, I think of ego. And you write so sharply about the resistance that your new science was mm. is met with in terms of the old science. Could you talk a little bit about mm. why these yeah. things are in such tension? Yeah, actually, there is a tendency to try to unearth plant intelligence by adopting the received view, the orthodox view within the hard sciences, right? So you might say within the field of psychology, we have a clear understanding that whichever animals or organisms in the tree of life are intelligent, it's got to boil down to the fact that they are somehow following a, a set of instructions, computationally speaking, so that they are computing their way out or that they are handling or manipulating or resorting to representational resources, right? So this received understanding within orthodox cognitive psychology, assuming that cognition or intelligence has to do with the following of rules, of sets of explicit rules in order to manipulate presentational inner states in your brain, right? Is what we have to challenge, to call into question. So when we are speaking about this new science from an ecological perspective, it's an ecological approach that precisely calls into question this received view. So according to this ecological approximation of this ecological approach, we are simply not in the business of computing the solution to a problem, like following a set of steps in our head, like, oh, this is the input. I follow this software in my head and then I can output the response. So this received view has to do with the metaphor of the digital computer. Like the mind is kind of the software that runs on our neural hardware, right? So by moving or shifting the, the focus to this new ecological approach, we put the emphasis on the interaction of the actual behaving, the way we interact with the surroundings. And that has nothing to do with the following of explicit rules in my brain. It has to do with actually forgetting, in fact, about trying to find out what's in here and simply put the focus on what's out there and how the organism and the environment provide a, a single unit of analysis. So let's examine, let's study, let's do our research on the organism slash environment as the single unit of analysis. That's what's ecological about it. So intelligence, neither plant nor human intelligence, has to do with what's happening within my skull. It has to do with how systems are constantly exchanging energy and matter in a way that allows for the system, the overall system, the holistic system, to keep performing its activities, to keep behaving adaptively and flexibly, right? Thank so you. That's, that's the way we should be questioning, in my view, the received approach. Perfect. Thank you. John, this hegemonic model or image that Paco described of intelligence and the self as consisting of a person at the wheel who's separate from the material body, this Cartesian model, which it draws from of the, of the ghost in the machine that has also been used to discount the subjectivity, agency, personhood of non-human animals, we know has also been wielded against non-Europeans. Indigenous people to discount their, our 
knowledge, cognition to discount it as knowledge, to discount legal and political theories as legal and political theories. And so this violence against plants in the more than human world, we know, is also profoundly intertwined with violence against Indigenous people, colonized people, epistemic violence, which continues to treat Indigenous knowledge as a terra nullius to erase it with the projection of European ideas about the more than human world as universal or to treat Indigenous knowledges as simply myths, so that even when they are confirmed by science, it is still the scientific knowledge that is treated as knowledge in its true sense, while Indigenous knowledges continue to be reduced to a metaphor. And yet when it comes to the types of transformation that Paco describes of thinking about intelligence and knowledge, not as something that emanates from an individuated human self, but something that's deeply embedded with and intertwined with the ecologies that surround us, indigenous legal and political theories are so valuable for not only decolonizing the terrain of knowledge, but transforming the terrain of knowledge as a whole. And so can you talk a bit about the centrality and importance in human relations with plants in your understandings of uh, what Anishinaabe law and ethical traditions require and teach us? Yeah, thank you for that question. The work is trying to understand how we are in relationship with the more than human world. And that requires an understanding of our embeddedness with the more than human world and the ideas of judgment or standards for decision-making are then co-constitutive, meaning that, of course, humans give their interpretation to what they're seeing with the more than human world, the way we interact with the more than human world. But it's not just a one-way street. We are influenced by, impacted by, changed by what we learn from, what we receive from, how we apprehend the more than human world. And so this idea of co-constitution is to see us as a part of a broader legal network that doesn't just flow from parliaments or legislatures or courts with judges and lawyers to help with the decision-making process that in fact, we are embedded in a broader civics that includes uh, our relationships with rocks and water and air and fire and insects and plants and animals, etc. And so the idea here is to see that our standards for judgment, our legal imaginations cannot just be limited by what humans generate in our formal systems of law, but in fact, law has a much broader way imagining how we regulate our affairs and resolve our disputes if we engage with the more than human world. Could you perhaps give us some specific examples? Because I think part of what is so transformative about not only the Anishinaabe legal norms that you communicate, but the very methodology that is communicated through story, through specific instances and experiences in a way which I think also converges with what Paco talks about, that um, other beings can't be understood in the abstract, that it's about particular relationships, particular plants with particular beings. Can you give us an example of the way that 
Anishinaabe legal methodology is drawn from particular relationships and experiences that you've had with the plant, for example. Yeah, so there's many different ways that these examples come about. Some of them are found in treaties between Indigenous peoples and the more than human world that influenced then our treaties that we entered into with Europeans when they came amongst us. Also, they are found in our creation stories, how our place in the world is structured or determined by our later arrival being so much building on and flowing from a life that proceeds before us. Our, our clan relationships are also illustrative of our sense of law being embedded in the more than human world. I'm otter clan. And so I have responsibilities to otters in the particular context of our environment. And then the idea of where we came from again is from those clans. The ideas also of our own experiences are measured by how we interact with, say, fish or birds, or again, think through in particular my relationship with otters. I know there's a lot of examples I'm giving there, but there's not just one way of understanding who we are as lawmakers. That is to see that the laws made by plants and animals and birds and fish in relationship with Anishinaabe people is to see that we are consulting them by understanding their behaviors in place and finding what the limits of their capacities are and making decisions about the possible futures of who they are in those places are all, it's if you're consulting with them by language, by stories, by experience, by a multifaceted pedagogy that puts you into this relationship that isn't just singular or hierarchical, but is really multi or polyvalent. Uh, and so the examples flow from many different directions. So I'd like to pick up this thread about the law and rationality. Since we mentioned Descartes, I'd like to introduce Kant. Now, the notion that rights only accrue to those rational beings, people that can reason their way and understand what the law is. And I'm thinking about how that then downplays the idea of instinct. And I'm going to give you a story from the East Asian tradition, because that's where I was trained. And there's mm -hmm. a story that that Confucius says, somebody's walking along the levee and she, they see a human body fall into the water and they instinctively jump in to save the person without regard to whether they're wearing rags or silk. So when and where do we become so uh, disdainful of instinct? And I'm, I'm drawing in Paco's work on intentionality mm -hmm. and instinct. And, and I, the idea of why can't we honor both, why can't we honor instinct in some ways? Why is that such a suspect mm. category? So yeah. for both of you to comment, yeah, yeah. Paco, maybe. Uh, actually, yeah, maybe also in relation to what John was talking about earlier in relation to lawmaking and or passing bills in parliament and things like this. I think it's interesting to bear in mind that we shouldn't fall prey of some dichotomy according to which either Western scientific knowledge is doomed because it's biased by default, 
and traditional knowledge is not biased or not doomed by default. And I think we should be open to considering that we might all at some point be right and some other time we might all be wrong. And we could be right and wrong for different reasons. So this is good that you brought the East Asian example because when John was mentioning this lawmaking thing, I was thinking precisely of something that happened to me in relation to, to, to bills being passed in the UK parliament on to, that deal with the dignity of animals. So when we speak of which forms of life are sentient, and that's something that in this case, one semester at the UK parliament, the English parliament, they were concerned about. So they were hiring this group of scientists to say, hey, can you inform us scientifically where we should set the bar? in between the non-sentient and the sentient, because that's important to know what sort of bills we should pass in parliament, right? And of course, we are well aware that we are opening up the landscape and thinking, hey, not just mammals with the neocortex, but of course, cephalopods and invertebrates and corvids, birds and blah, blah, blah. So we keep opening the field and thinking that way more animal species that we thought were not sentient and were simply behaving by instinct that we're not able to learn or to exhibit all the cognitive capacities that we humans think that we exhibit. And even though we are enlarging the picture, I found interesting, we were having this meeting with this group of scientists and some in their own sala with the Dalai Lama and some Tibetan monks, right? So in this meeting, what I found fascinating is that despite thinking that Western scientists are the ones that are biased, I was handing, so the, the organizer told us, you can bring a copy of your books or whatever and give a complimentary copy to His Holiness, to the Dalai Lama, right? So as I was handing a copy of Planta Sapiens to the Dalai Lama, I was assuming that we were on the same page, okay? I was telling him out of naivety, right? Sheer ignorance. I was saying, hey, plants are sentient like nodding, like assuming he was going to say, of course, plants are sentient. Any form of life has got to be sentient, right? And his response was a bland, no way. He was like, not only animals can be sentient. But now I understood why. And you see, what I'm getting at, it's not as easy as traditional knowledge can tell us the way to connect with nature. And then we need to learn Western scientists how to incorporate that into the way you know, into the scientific method to get solid scientific data or evidence or explanations. But sometimes it's, it works both ways and sometimes we might all be wrong, right? So when I was asking His Holiness why he thought plants were not sentient, his response was because they cannot move, they don't locomote. So animals that have to locomote, that has to move around, to, to hide, to hunt, all these things, then animals must be sentient. They've got to evolve sentience. Because they need it. If they need to be cruising and moving around and finding food and hunting and hiding and doing this and doing that. But plants being sessile, they don't need sentience. Why would they need to be sentient, right? So I was intrigued by this approach because coming from traditional knowledge was falling prey of the same mistakes orthodox Western science falls prey of. So that gave me some food for thought because I thought maybe... What can I ask you? Can I ask you a clarification question? When he said this about plants not being sentient because they don't locomote, did he draw on Buddhist teachings to support that? Or did it just seem like an ambient idea that was taken as quote-unquote common sense? Did he justify that belief to you or tell you where it came from? At that point, he just made that comment. 
But then he gave us a copy of one of his books and I was actually browsing his book on the flight back home and I found a passage where he was actually spelling this out. Talking to some of the Tibetan monks that were with him in this meeting, they kind of pointed in the following direction. If I was going to convince him that plants are sentient at all, it wouldn't have to do with locomotion versus growth, but rather with the idea of, for example, being compassion or altruism, things like this. So if you can find plant behavior that is altruistic, that might be the entry route, right? But that's not something he was developing into an argument. It was just, so to speak, his hunch. But to me, it was very meaningful, significant, the fact that for different reasons, both Western scientists and them were making, in my view, the same mistake, which is to be biased by animal fast, speedy locomotion. So this comment, I will bring in this to the discussion in the following sense. Regardless of who is right or who is wrong, I think we should try to bridge in a more solid way this bidirectional way of providing feedback to each other. Because sometimes traditional knowledge might be right, but for the wrong reasons. So you might be, you might have the right hunch. You might be thinking, oh, I don't really know how to explain this, but, but because out of my experience with the way I interact with my surroundings in my local environment, I might have the right theoretical framework, right? My frame of mind might be in the right direction, but it might be for the wrong reasons. And alternatively, sometimes you might have a good scientific working hypothesis that might be backed up by traditional knowledge, but we, if only we were able to find a way to connect them both. So that's a way of saying that, that it's not that we need to adapt one discourse to the other, but that they both should reciprocally provide feedback to each other because we are all in principle capable of, of making the same mistakes for different reasons. Thank you. I would like to say that, yes, we need to be humble in the way that we engage in these questions because we all have our partialities and it is the case that we can be easily misled and our biases and our heuristics are something that uh, serves us well in some instances and then does not. It runs out of steam. And David, you started with Kant. I think that sometimes categorical imperatives as generalizations can do some work for us, but eventually those generalizations will run out in other contexts. So I worry about fundamentalisms. I worry about essentializations. I think it's important that we always are engaged in the context. Again, I'm not against generalizations, but not generalizations for all time and place as absolutes, but as starting points that are often based on experience and study. But again, that experience and study can run out when we encounter new settings, other issues that aren't a part of what we've been engaged in. And so the notion of sentience and intuition is not really a way I've imagined the field. I think about the sustainability of the relationships between all of the components of humans in the more than human world. And so if it's about the sustainability and the relationality, then what are the standards, principles, authority, criteria, measures, signposts, guideposts, traditions, precedents that help us to have better relationships of care as opposed to those that diminish or exclude or oppress or have less of the possibility of having the rich and thick 
relationships of care that we would like to see. And so sentience, intuition, it's not something that I engage in much because I, not in the field, frankly, but I do feel that the idea of law intending to relationships of reciprocity is a key part of what I'm trying to think through in the work I'm doing. I wonder too, if the varying categories or juxtaposition or dichotomy between cognition and intuition is itself something that needs to be deconstructed or questioned. We know from the work of uh, people like Antonio Damasio, for example, that a lot of work mm-hmm. get dismissed as intuition and that is located in other neural networks outside of the brain that's located in our head, for example, that's located in the viscera, gets dismissed as intuition when really it's a deeply encoded form of rationality that actually serves sure. more as a shortcut for decision-making mm-hmm. rather than having to go through the, the cognitive process. I think that's right. We, we think with our whole bodies and in relationship to other bodies, I'll, often my thoughts are formed by other bodies and those bodies are not, again, always human. And so the idea of this set of dichotomies, I think, can be challenged on that basis. The Anishinaabe is an Algonquian language that's spoken across a lot of the eastern part of North America. Only 30% of the words is noun-based. So categorization is the minor key. 70% of the language is verbs. And so the idea is to not categorize relationships or categorize law. It's to conjugate relationships. It's to conjugate law. And so if you're in a mode of conjugation as opposed to categorization, then you're not as inclined to dichotomies because you, with verbs, find ways to, you know, put action with pronouns and locations and tenses and et cetera. And so sometimes our very framework of language can create a understanding of categorization that puts us into polarities and puts us into dichotomies. And I'm not saying that categorization, again, is not important. It's an important part of how we try to understand our world. Mm -hmm. But categorization can eventually break down in certain contexts. And there's a whole other world of possibility with conjugation that's present for us too. David, can I talk about that? Yeah, no, actually, the very idea of, I entirely agree. And if I would translate it into my own language, I would be speaking of, of our commitments relating, metaphysical commitments relating to, if we speak of a metaphysic of, of processes, it's something that unfolds in time uh, inherently. So you couldn't press pause and study cognition. You've got to let it unfold in time. So it, it, the temporal dimension is part of it. You wouldn't be able to understand it if it was a static. So the process itself that has to do with the action, with interaction, is what drives the will. As soon as you pause, as soon as you press pause, you miss the, the phenomenon in the first place, right? And that relates as well to the idea of all this uh, Damasio point, like that, that had to do with this idea of thinking, hey, we are way more decentralized than we thought we were. When we are offloading cognitive cargo out of the neural tissue, so bodily constraints, environmental constraints, so this idea of gut feelings, and sometimes we may be confabulating. We may be confabulating by thinking, no, no, the guy here at the wheel, at the prefrontal cortex is the one, but we know that's a confabulation. Things get done in a parallel distributed fashion, and these are all continuous temporal emergent properties that if you press pause, you miss them all together. The thing evaporates, right? So that has to do that. That's what I think that allows us to understand that we are closer than we thought we were. 
to these more decentralized systems. And that certainly, as uh, John was suggesting, in my view, has to do with a, a clear commitment to understanding things as they unfold in real time. Otherwise, you won't find it located, stored anywhere. Because things are not being stored to then be retrieved. You don't store and then retrieve. You just resonate. And that has to do with resonance. Like we are resonating with those environmental properties. And when we incorporate them into our neural tissue, we are not storing them. This is like a dance. We are coupled, intertwined. And in these dances where we can resonate with those properties that are lawfully connected. So if we are going to speak of how we can be nomically or lawfully connected, that has to do with not allowing for the system to stop, be on, on standby, to keep always moving and moving. Otherwise, there is no way to break the dichotomy. But yeah, it's a graded thing. That's for sure. When John talks about the emphasis in Nishinaabemo and perhaps on becoming rather than being, on verbs rather than nouns, it also profoundly reminds me of the way that you describe being and experience in plants, that their very body form reflects mm. their experience, reflects their history, which profoundly challenges, I think, this very essentialized idea that we have from a zoocentric, animal-centric idea of what a self is as a set determined body or self. And also when you describe how, for example, very poignantly, how plants that grow up in labs and are raised in the lab environment are completely different from oh, plants absolutely. as they are in their wild or, or natural ecologies, that their cognition is completely different, which perhaps is a reminder to all of us as well, that we tend to think of our brains or our minds as a static thing that belongs to us. But we know even from these very disturbing um, experiments that have been done in social isolation, right, the effects of solitary confinement on humans, that all of us are constituted through each other, made through each other, that our brains are made in relationship with our mm. environment and the other beings around us. And this is also very clear when it comes to plants and the differences between plants that grow up in sterile lab environments versus wild versus wild environments. And so absolutely. So can you talk a bit about how then we might imagine an ethics which is based profoundly on this idea that we are not individual, isolated mm. atomic cells, but rather that we are profoundly made yeah. and unmade by each yeah. other. You're and completely yeah. right. There are at least two senses in which we need to rethink what we mean by the individual, right? So regardless of whether we are talking about lab conditions or natural settings. So regardless of those two, imagine I could have a plant, a single potted plant in sterile conditions within the lab, in a growing chamber, we are time-lapsing the plant to see what it does, whatever. Regardless of how detached that is from a natural setting, the very same question of who the individual is arises the same. Because when, you're, when you see a pea plant, we are doing some experiments with pea plants, right? So like learning experiments. And you see the tendrils of the pea plant. And this is these forks, right? Like the, the, so it's branching. And you are able, at the end of the day, to think of, not metaphorically, but truly, to think of each individual tip, shoot tip, as one agent, as one individual. And in fact, the plant body itself is more closer to the idea of collective intelligence, of a swarm or a flock, school of fish, right? So these patterns of collective intelligence, the plant itself that we think of as an individual is a collectivity. And we can think of each individual tip, both 
below ground, so the root tips or the shoot tips, each individual tip as being one individual doing its own thing and then orchestrating, organizing with the rest of individuals, the rest of tips, what they all do together, because overall, overall they are trying to, to deliver a response that is adaptive at the global level. But even if that's challenging enough to picture the plant as a collective, as a society, again, now going to your second sense, you say, hold on a sec. What are we doing when we are putting this plant in sterile conditions? Oh, it's not just the fact that these are sterile conditions, it's that we miss a key part of the puzzle, which is that we are all holistic, complex multiverses, so that you have the plant is connected with all the mycorrhizal connections with the fungi. And how can we make sense of plant behavior if we forget that almost 90 point whatever percentage of plants live naturally in mutualistic with fungi, with trading and providing foods and resources and water and nutrients, sugars to each other. So we don't quite get it. If we think that we are not holobiomes, that this, the individual as such, not just that each tip is an individual, but that the holobiont itself in the environment is the one and only unit of analysis. So one thing we must do, so I'm speaking to myself when we are in the lab, we need to remind to ourselves of all these shortcomings. And still, it's okay or it's justified that we still do these experiments for the sake of control. So we need to have control conditions to deal with, to know what variables, what, which parameters we are playing with. So having control in, in laboratory conditions means simply that we need, to be, we need to be extra careful when we try to see what sort of varying this or how we bridge when we move from lab conditions to the open. Because the phenomenon itself might have nothing to do. Because as you said, oh, is it, if, this is, if we are social by nature, what can you learn from time lapsing a plant by itself in an sterile? So even though you might learn a lot, that might have nothing to do with what these guys are doing out there. So I think that we need to find to strike the right balance in between natural observations, field observations, and control conditions in the lab. They are both informative, but it is not easy at all to see how they should inform each other, right? But definitely, you're absolutely right. Is it that there is no easy answer to this question other than being extra careful. <laughs> John, the way that ideas about co-constitution inform Anishinaabe approaches to law. In your work, you talk so beautifully about how, as people, we are of the earth that we live on, that we share the same material. Uh, I know indigenous political theorists like Vanessa Watts also talk about soil as agentic and as something that we are co-constituted with, that living on the same land and being in relationship with the land for centuries, that the soil is of you and you are of the soil, that we're even at a basic chemical level, so intertwined with each other. Yeah, I think that's an important insight that also can be overextended. Sort of nationalisms that sometimes get attached to soil are very disturbing because it denies our relationality more generally across different ways of organizing ourselves in the plural. <laughs> Having said that and recognizing that danger, there is also wisdom that comes from living in place and having relationships that allow you to observe how plants, animals, rocks might behave or respond to other 
agents, other animals, plants, more than humans interacting with them. And so the idea there is to respect the insights that then get encoded in language and embedded in stories and embodied in the way that humans pass on those lessons in places, recognizing again, that wisdom will run out. We need to have other stories that interact with that and other experiences that are taken in so that we have the kind of checks and balances or the diffusion or the decentralization of knowledge away from just a particular ecosystem or a particular people or culture living in a place. That is, we need to be aware that danger of a single story or regard nuance as sacred or get different angles of vision on what those relationships to that place might mean. Trying to do that without oppressive colonial overextension is an important part of this as well, so that you're having these kinds of engagements that aren't preset by a hierarchy that says, well, Indigenous peoples are lower on the scale of social organization and therefore their insights should be less valuable in that. There may be reasons for not taking some of those insights on board, but it's not a a priori reason for doing that. It would be through the sort of sifting and weighing and balancing and fullness again of getting this different angles of vision on what it is that's being expressed by people in a place as they're telling you about their relationships as clan to different animals or even uh, plants as some uh, clans, in fact. And so that is where I would hope that we would be able to have conversations about soil and place and recognize that it has some value, but not universal value. Right. Well, one thing that I really appreciate about talking with you all is how nuanced you both are. You, know, you don't lead to easy conclusions. And I, <laughs> I, I, want to, I want to go back to this idea of instinct from a different angle. And here's the angle. Paco, you talk about ecological cognition, right? A very mm. in-tuned understanding of oneself in relation to a set of variables. And I'm putting this against what I'm going to call imperial instinct, which is just, we want everything, right? There's no discernment. I'm thinking about Sir Francis Drake navigating down the coast of California saying, I claim this for the queen. I claim that is this indiscriminate. And John, you talk about inherent limits. Uh, so if you could both talk about the instinct to want everything, to acquire everything and extract everything, and the importance of discerning limits, both in terms of law and in terms of our relationship to the environment. Well, when it comes to discerning limits and how we care about the bearing upon our relation to the environment and, so to speak, to the mess we have created, right? I think there is a, a one missing term here so far. We've talked about lawmaking, but we cannot detach the discussion of this from education. And the problem with education is that the timescales vary dramatically. So if we are going to educate a full whole generation into ecological principles of respect, that takes time. And the paradox is that the pressure we have requires to speed things up. 
we don't have that much time, for example. I enjoy a lot giving talks to primary and secondary school kids because they are very different from university students. They are younger and they've been less brainwashed by orthodoxy simply because they've spent less years through the educational system. So it, it's still not that late in their case, okay? But if you start to think uh, how much time you have to work with them and to try to put them in the right frame of mind, you realize that, or in my case, what I've realized is that one image is worth 1,000 words. For example, I like to say when I joke about this and I say, well, if one image is worth 1,000 words, imagine one time-lapse footage made out of thousands of images is worth billions of words. And think about what happened with My Octopus Teacher, the documentary, these sort of things, right? So I think that... Could, that, you explain, that, could you explain just briefly for listeners what My Octopus Teacher was? Oh, so this was a documentary in which you could see the engagement or the interaction in between the octopus and the researcher in the octopus ecological setting, not into a fish tank. But rather, the human was making the effort to share the space of the octopus and start to draw lessons out of the experience, the immersive experience into the world of the octopus. And it is amazing. Actually, this connects to what we were speaking before about lab conditions versus natural conditions. It is amazing when you see this documentary that there is all these behavioral patterns exhibited by the octopus that you wouldn't believe they were there. There was no way you would have guessed octopuses were able to do things like the ones you see in the documentary, in the film. Once you see them, you don't need, let's put it in a way that I don't get misunderstood, but you don't need 1,000 pages of, of philosophy books to get the point. You know when you see it that the octopus is sentient. If you watch that documentary, an hour or whatever, however long it is, that that gets you there in one shot. And this one shot is what I meant about the time scale and the time needed for, you know, for these ideas to root and grow in the mindset we need to evolve in between all of us. So I think that's very much needed. And when it comes to this gradation in between instincts and cognition and what's in phylogeny or what's in ontogeny, what we can blame our genes for or how much flexibility we have in terms of learning, our own flexibility when it comes to doing away with these prejudices and be ready to embrace these new frameworks. So we might be closer or more ready to embrace those frameworks than we think we are, but we only need to be exposed to the knowledge that we are gathering, provided that it is fed to us in the right format. So the format is essential for us to be able to appreciate it. That's the point. And then we might speed things up. Thank you. John? And so everyone go read Plant a Sapien. Okay. <laughs> yeah, a few thoughts occur to me as I'm listening to Paco. First of all, I've never thought of parliament and legislatures and courts as being like controlled lab conditions, but I want to think about that now that he's introduced control versus what happens in the field, because we have a law that's initiated in parliaments and legislatures and interpreted in courts. That doesn't always map on to law that's practiced and experienced 
outside of those places. And it is the fact that law happens in those places. And I want to think through the analogies that Paco's provided for trying to understand that more fully. But in thinking about the idea of education, I also think that we need more range in our education. We are too specialized in the way that we approach that so that lawyers just study statutes and judgments and don't consider the customs and deliberations that happen beyond those settings that much, that's a problem. Uh, but of course, lawyers shouldn't just be studying deliberation and either the just only the parliamentary or the societal, that there's so much more that we can gain about decision-making and judgment from other disciplines that would flow from immersion that are neatly bracketed up into different categorizations that flow from dis disciplinary perspectives. So often what we do in our Indigenous law degree is we take students to communities and have them have experiences with the plants and the animals. The beavers are eating the apples along the shore and the wild rice is uh, dipping against the water and the students get to hear from the elders about their experiences fishing in that site. And maybe the chiefs and leaders will talk about the encounter they had a, with a bear last week. And, and, and so in other words, the students through immersion get the sense that you can't as Paco just press pause and study something in a moment of freeze frame. In fact, it's very relational. And so the immersion experiences, the on the land experiences enable the students who sometimes have never actually been out of the city to uh, be in a place to see a, a, a community of plants and animals and insects and how that's in the water. They get cold at night and they, the rain falls and then the stars come out. And it is important for them to see that we are constituted, not just in boxes, in high rises or neatly coiffed lawns, but in fact, we are constituted more in diverse ways than we might imagine. And so the, to, for education, to help students experience that and have other imaginations that are, of course, books are important. I love books, but are beyond books. There's an archive that can be read if you have another kind of literacy that's found in the more than human world. And that literacy might be through languages. It could be through observations, might be found in stories. It might be pieced together through clans talking with one another, elders giving their wisdom or reading Paco's book or reading a piece of legislation about the rights of a river, right? That, that is and different, all of John Borrow's book. <laughs> different angles of vision to bring to this and not be so hyper-specialized that we Absolutely. lose the, yeah. the interconnectivities of these things. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting, John. There is another issue that I really, I really love this example. It's the way we can exploit in our advantage the power of ignorance. And in this case, it's the freedom of being ignorant, of not being specialized, of not being the Pope in the field that knows the literature, right? Being open to other fields. And this example, I was impressed when I listened to this BBC interview that they made, like, I'm talking a few decades ago, right? So they were interviewing this BBC journalist and he was interviewing Orson Welles and was asking him, hey, how did you make Citizen Kane? That was a film you made when you were 25, right? His first film ever. And he made a masterpiece. So the journalist was asking him, how did you do it? Did you know everything 
at that age? Were you a genius? You knew everything because that film was revolutionary in all aspects. The way of the camera moved, the script, the, the soundtrack, everything. It was revolutionary in every single aspect of what Citizen Kane meant in the history of cinema, right? So when they were asking Orson Welles how he was able to do that, did you ingest or process all the information of all that history prior to what you have done and then you were able to find your niche, your space to say, hey, this is where I can, I, I can nail it. I didn't know what are you talking about? He said, I was able to do it because I didn't know that couldn't be done. So it was the fact he was free to explore and he speaks of the freedom of ignorance. So it was precisely the fact that he wasn't know what he was getting into that allowed him to explore freely to that extent, right? And sometimes something similar happens to us when we are in the open, interacting out of the city, doing things around, and we are not explicitly trying to find anything. And then sometimes you find things when you are not searching or looking for them. Uh, it's that type of, so it's being open in a very tacit way, being open to resonating with whatever you might end up resonating with, being ready to receive what might come. But that sometimes, paradox, paradoxically enough, doesn't have to do with becoming an expert. Sometimes it's just the opposite. So sometimes it's, you are just open to explore, things happen to you, even if you are not explicitly trying to make the connection. And in my experience, that happens a lot of times when you go out there and do these explorations and are talking to these people. And you might simply be enjoying the fact that you are uh, slowing down that you are chilling out, that you are, hey, back up, hectic lifestyle and just slowing down. And suddenly things happen simply because you change the time scaling in which you are making observations. And that allows you to see things that you wouldn't see otherwise, right? And I, I just have to insert one thing is what's so important about the Orson Welles story is that he had worked with these people as a theater troupe beforehand in a different mm -hmm. genre. So there was a kind of collaboration yeah. that was built in and trust and then he posted to a new environment, which yeah. was free to do experiment because he wasn't familiar with it. So that's a beautiful yeah, yeah, story. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They were intrigued by the, the movements of the camera, right? And then they say the, the guy that was handling the camera, he, he had to take a crash course because he didn't know even how to handle the camera. And that was what they told. This was so special. And the, what was so special turned out to be the fact that he didn't even know how to grab it. <laughs> uh, and I think your point about ignorance speaks so powerfully to how, and even contrasting the way that children interact with the more than human world, it speaks powerfully to how we actively have to be taught to not think of the more than human world of plants of other than human animals as beings to whom we owe ethical obligations to, that it's not a natural state of being, but it's something that's inculcated. I have two more questions I want to ask, but I know that we're getting to the end of time, but I want to start. John, picking up on this idea of law, this very different idea of law than what's normally communicated in, for example, Canadian law school. If this concept of law provides a way of getting around or at least mitigating the fetishization of categorization that pervades so many conversations about what the legal status of more than human beings should be in law. Paco spoke earlier about these parliamentary processes where they were trying uh, so assiduously to draw the line between what's sentient and what's not sentient. So who would be considered uh, to have some personhood in law uh, versus not. 
And we know that the, the treatment of more than human beings in law is so paradoxical that they're treated as objects and commodities, non-persons, but the very thing that makes them valuable as commodities to human in the first place are their life processes, their abilities to grow, to reproduce, which as we know from attempts to reproduce these artificially are actually very difficult to manufacture. And so it's their very status as living beings that makes them valuable as commodities, but that also that discounts them from being treated as persons or as individuals with their own inherent status in law in the first place. And so I'm wondering if drawing on Anishinaabe concepts of law, as well as what we're learning uh, about plants, can provide a way of thinking about what it would mean to have ethical relationships with more than human beings articulated through law in a way that isn't premised on drawing categories, hierarchies based on degree of similarity to humanity, but rather situated or stemming from a deep consideration of our relations of interdependence with all of these beings. So I think that last word about relations is the important one here. That is, sometimes we are trying to have better relations with the more than human world by categorizing them as living or valuable in some terms to human life or productivity, or we put these packages around you know, the, the rights of nature, the rights of wild rice, for instance. That can be valuable because it's an imaginary that helps people extend what they're doing in protecting a certain class right now to a broader class. But I, I think it's ultimately limited because it still depends on a categorization. It's not like, who cares really if they're living or valuable? We are in a relationship. And that relationship is one of co-constitution and mutual dependence. And so, yes, if people are helped along that path through a certain categorization, fine. But it is also limiting, even as it's eye-opening and creates a fields of possibility. And so within, as I understand, Anishinaabe law, the point is to see the relationality. It's to see the connectivity, to see the Yes, analogies and distinctions, but don't just rest with the analogies and distinctions, but to see yourself in. So, for instance, a elder of mine said, until you can look at that squirrel and see yourself in that squirrel, you don't know what it means to be Anishinaabe. And that's a head scratcher. But then I recently had a friend that adopted a squirrel who fell out of a tree and was injured and took that squirrel into their home and just was a part of their family, a part of their relationality. And in other words, didn't have to pause and think, what's the legislation? What's the law? What's the category? What's the value to me? What's the status of this? It's not status-based. It's not, not based on the usefulness to me. It's the sense of the connectivity that I think is being facilitated, highlighted perhaps by aspects of Anishinaabe law. And I hope we get to questions of religion in a moment at some point in this conversation, but I'll leave it at this point. Yeah, I, I guess it's the experiential aspect itself. I mean, if you are having the experience of that interaction or that engagement, that, that's it, right? And, and there is another way to put it, uh, what we have to do or we, we should be doing. And this is a sort of a thought experiment I try sometimes with uh, secondary school kids. I tell them to travel in time 
say backwards, say prior to the appearance of Homo sapiens on planet Earth. Because the problem is that we are using ourselves as the gold standard. That's a problem. We need to stop navel gazing, right? So navel gazing is a problem. So if we get rid of ourselves, we move ourselves out of the picture, we might get started from scratch in a different way to develop the empathy we need to develop, mm -hmm. right? To be on the same footing, we might say, no, don't get started from the top down and say, hey, I know what we are. We are sapient. We are humans. We know what we can do. Mm -hmm. And then start to saying from that perspective, say, okay, primates and mammals with a neocortex and birds. And so instead of starting from the top down and see who else is, deserves uh, to be treated with respect because they are sufficiently similar to us, we might get started from the bottom up. And a good way to get started from the bottom up is to disappear from planet Earth, if only mentally, to think, can you picture a planet Earth of half 500,000 years ago, whatever, 1 million, one, you name it, and we are not here, and get, let's get started with unicellulars. Imagine interacting without your bodily features in the world of bacteria, because funnily enough, Many researchers that I talk to, they are still ready to conceive the very possibility of bacterial sentience. They say, oh, yeah, bacteria, yeah, sure, they can be sentient. You know why? Remember the, the Dalai Lama? Because bacteria, you can see them swimming up a sugar mm -hmm. gradient. You can see them doing things like chemotactic behavior. They swim around, they move. And then you are able to develop that type of empathy because we move around. But if we remove ourselves from the picture, you cannot take movement as the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Then you would get started from scratch, removing those standards and not using, exploiting those comparisons. And when you get started from the bottom up, then you end up that the more you appreciate how different life forms do whatever they do without having to fit any bill that you have set for them, then once you enter the picture, now you fast forward, and now once you enter the picture, you enter the picture with the rules of the game that they were playing, not your own rules. And that's the way to get yourself into their game. And then you are not navel gazing anymore, right? I know this is just a mental exercise, but sometimes it helps to see how you can get started from the bottom up and not from the top down. So I know Aziza had another question or maybe the final one. So if I could just slip one question in and then maybe end with Aziz's because both John and Paco's last comments locate me in the question I want to ask. I want to talk about one of the first images that you have in your book, Paco, is putting a plant under anesthesia, which sort of gets to your point. And I run the risk of being considered a Kantian. I'm not a Kantian. I'm just using him to riff off of because, of course, when you think Don't of, worry, David, we would never suspect you of being a true okay, Kantian. Okay, good. Or, or if anything <laughs> in particular, I'm pretty ecumenical. But when you think of anesthesia, you think of the root, which is aesthetic, right? And you think of Kant and the critique of judgment. And when he talks about the aesthetic, he says there must be something called a sensus communis. There must be something that pre, no, an a priori that we have to assume is a basis for morality that's almost precognitive. And earlier on, Paka, you also mentioned the word dignity. And I'm thinking, John, that this word dignity, especially inherent dignity, some people argue might take the place of these long codifications of human rights. If we just plug in this word dignity, 
So maybe if you could both talk about what common thing could we imagine, and maybe a stigmatism, maybe something else that we would use to be a proper way of relating to everything, right? That could be a way of thinking this bacterial, pre-bacterially almost. Mm. So, so I think I have a hard time with devising a common thing. I, I'm going to critique Plato here for a second. That the sun <laughs> form is there in the perfect way in some abstract place. And if we can find what that form is, then we will see more clearly what that is in its on the ground aspect. And so the idea is to get different angles of vision to mutually mm. elucidate what it is that we're trying to understand with recognizing that whenever in a hundred percent, perhaps I don't want to be even essentialization about non-essentialization, but we might not get there even if we bring all our visions together, our ideas together. And so the notion here is to find within these different traditions of science and indigeneity and religion and philosophy and psychology, ways of approaching these questions that will benefit me as someone who's not trained in all of these disciplines, if I get psychologists or philosophers or scientists insight. But I would have a hard time imagining that there would then just be a fusion of horizons. In fact, I think we'd be living with perspicuous contrast, vocabularies of comparison. We'd be living with trickster-like places where things don't quite always fit together on the seams, because I feel like we need to always be paying attention to the context and to the experiential and the places of where we find these dimensions. We, we have to be careful about an overlay. Yes, generalizations again, I really think that generalizations can be powerful, but they run out of steam eventually. And so something will not be common in a certain context because it doesn't fit in the setting. Mm, right. So that, now that's interesting the way we are wrapping things up here, because if you, did you notice David started with Khan, John went for Plato. So to have the three legs, I'm going to go for Aristotle. <laughs> so if John's speaking of forms, I would like to bring the idea of biological functions here to go for this thing that David was asking about. What is it that is being shared, that is common, that we are all sharing, that is universal, that allows us to say, hey, we should all forms of life in the tree of life be treated with respect, with dignity or whatever, right? So I, I like to speak of some master key, something being, something that unites us all in the tree of life, right? And to me, this master key has to do with the capacity to integrate information because I'm starting to respect bacteria when I see a bacteria that swims up a sugar gradient, and it's not simply reacting to the sugar gradient, but integrating that information with information coming in from and being processed through many other sensory modalities. So the bacteria is not simply responding to the sugar gradient. It's feeling the gravity pull. There is something else going on here. There is all sorts of stuff going outside and inside the very cell, right? So the need to integrate all those informational channels and still provide a response that is globally adaptive is what I think deserves us to say, hey, this is not simply a little tiny cell responding reactively, automatically, or in a pre-programmed fashion. It's not simply 
a pre-programmed response. It's got to do, it's got to be doing something about it. It's got to be meaning making in the process of meaning making the interactions it's engaging in, right? And that's what I think is the actual uh, master key that unlocks any branch in the tree of life. We are all fungi, plants, humans, animals, bacteria, archive, protozoans, protein, you name it. Any form of life whatsoever wouldn't be here if it was not meaning-making, integrating information, right? And this takes us to what David mentioned about Hey, at the beginning of Planta Sapiens, Paco, you're putting a plant to sleep. Okay, put it this way, to develop the capacity to empathize with the plant or to think that it, it deserves our respect. For many people, it's a hard pill to swallow to think of plant subjective states of awareness or subjective experiences within a plant. But when you think that you, we know that we can anesthetize a plant, a good way to go about it is to think, so if you can anesthetize a plant, okay, no spoilers, that's how I get started. Then we know that plants come out of anesthesia, right? After a while, the anesthetic wears off and the plant goes back to normal, to what it was normally doing. So again, able to integrate information, providing responses that's globally adaptive. So if you think about it, to me, the key question is, what is it that the plant is regaining that had lost temporarily? So when it was under anesthesia, we know we can poke it and it won't do anything. It's, it's anesthetized like an animal. But when you come out of anesthesia, what does it mean to come out of anesthesia? What is it that you are recovering that you had lost temporarily? This thing that you are recovering, to me, is the entry door to, to appreciating their inner life and the need to respect them. So they deserve dignity, those guys that are regaining something that they had lost through anesthesia. Now they are integrating information. They are responding in a way which is not written in their genes. It has to do with how they are interacting with the surroundings. So the fact that anesthetics put any form of life whatsoever to sleep, which happens to be the case, you can also anesthetize bacteria. So any form of life can be put to sleep with anesthetics. To me, that's the best way to see what unites us all. What unites us all is what we recover when we come out of anesthesia. And it's what makes us worth of respect. This isn't what I was planning to ask, but I'm wondering if that capacity to integrate perhaps ends up drawing another line between the beings of perhaps, the world versus the ends up drawing another line between the beings of the world versus the furniture of the world. And I'm thinking to what I've learned about Anishinaabe tradition from John, where rocks are also described and referred to as grandfathers and keepers of stories. Are there other ways of thinking about ethical relationships with the other than human world uh, in ways that perhaps even go beyond simply those beings that have a capacity to integrate that we can recognize? Well, that's the point I think of not perhaps putting reason at the center or reactivity even at the center of our valuing of relationality. And so the relationality piece is not making a judgment about whether there's a worthiness or unworthiness to think of the protectivity or the based on 
a locomotion or a reason or a responsiveness, an integrative function. And so that will run out of steam as well. I know that generalization has to be interrogated and also will come up short at certain pieces. But the idea is that rocks, yes, have place in our relationality. We have to find ways of understanding the geology and the connectivity of that geology to the plants more than human life worlds. And that the sense of finding that existing along a, a spectrum of possibilities as opposed to a dichotomy is really important. I just want to get this point in, which may not feel related, which is I think our religious traditions construed broadly across the world have been grappling with these questions for millennia. And it is the case that we often stereotype what these traditions might say in relationship to these questions as well. And I think there's lots more room for those that don't pick up law or science or psychology or whatever the organizing way of understanding these questions that we're examining are. We, there, there's, there are rich veins of thought that can bring us closer and practice to some of these questions and that will intersect with the things that we've been talking about as well. And if we had more time, we could go into examples with, a, with the, the, the Buddha talking about bees and the Quran talking about bees and Jesus talking about the lilies of the field and communion as a plant ceremony and Medewan societies, which is the Anishinaabe spiritual society, which is based around plants. Our medicine society, our philosophical spiritual society is first and foremost based upon what plants teach us about how to be in good relationship with one another. And so we might not find religion in everyone's wheelhouse and the way that they would think about connecting to these questions, but I do. And I think other people will, who are listening to this conversation, wonder about those traditions and what they have to say. And I, again, we don't essentialize them and just think that they're single stories we could find places for conversation around what we've been talking about today as well. I, could I just connect these ideas to what the previous question on, on rocks, on the living and the non-living? How can we put them all on the same page under this broader perspective that John was mentioning? So this is a different angle, right? To see how compatible the two angles are. When we are saying that we shouldn't fall prey of these dichotomies and that everything is on a continuum, my master key related to the living and now, hey, what happens with rocks and with the inert environment that we are interacting with? Think of Gaia, so of Gaia itself, right? The biosphere, the Gaia system. Think of Gaia as the organism. So we spoke of getting started from the bottom up and thinking of a cell, of a unicellular. So think of Gaia as the unicellular. So imagine Gaia is the cell, right? And then is the fact that the individual, the one and only individual is Gaia itself. Then the rocks, the plants, the fungi, you and I, anything within the biosphere, we all become organelles, organelles, intracellular organelles. So little bits and pieces of the one and only individual, which is Gaia itself. I know that takes you out of the, strictly speaking, scientific understanding, unless we find a way to test and, and make predictions and test this hypothesis. But the framework itself, I think is pretty much consistent with the type of beliefs John was mentioning. Within that field, 
the division or the dichotomy in between the living and the non-living simply dissolves because we are all intracellular organisms or organelles within this one and only system, which is Gaia itself. And we know from the work of biologists like Lynn Margulis that even our cells, which we think of as being unitary, ultimately indivisible, building blocks of life were themselves composed of bacteria and other organisms that came together to form the organelles in the first place, a hypothesis which was for a long time discounted, but is now, I mean, when I went sure. to university, that's the theory of the cell that yeah. I was thought. Yeah. So even at the very most basic component of our being, we yeah. are composed of relationships between different beings. But the question and, it's very is, no, sorry. and it's very difficult to make sense of that without a framework which is based on mutualisms. And if it's based on mutualisms, any part of that system, living or non-living, deserves that type of respect or the dignity we were speaking of. I wanted to flip this exaltation of locomotion and <laughs> the status that comes with locomotion to flip it on its head because in many ways, the very things that may provide valuable, not to, again, fetishize or judge our responsibilities to things on the basis of their value to us. But the fact is the very thing that might make plants valuable to us in thinking about how to live within inherent limits is the fact that they don't move. Because ultimately, as humans, we know, even as in, though individuals we move, as a people, unless you're into Elon Musk and moving to different planets, we are here on this planet. This is where we live. We have nowhere else to move. And so learning to live within limits when you can't simply move away from your mistakes is perhaps something very fundamental and essential that we can learn from plants. When I read you, Paco, speaking about the lessons that plants and plant cognition might have for us as humans, it reminds me too of what I've learned from John and the concept in Nishinaba Mowen about Akinumagewen. Did I pronounce that right? John Akinumagewen, <laughs> which is the Anishinaabe Mowen word for learning, but which is composed of words that literally means to take teachings from the earth. But of course, we know nothing is ever univalent and that even as we might draw teachings from the earth, powerful states also take lessons from other than human animals, other than human beings who they seem to only value for what insights they can provide and perhaps enhancing their military capacities. So that, for instance, the swarming capabilities of insects and plants are taken as an inspiration for new ways to organize drone warfare without actually challenging the structures of domination that pervade warfare and environmental damage in the first place. And so perhaps we could end with both of your reflections on how we can engage in learning from plants in Akinomogewen in, in ways that are connected to values of non-domination in contestation of the structures of domination, which, as Paco's po pointed out, we so urgently need to contest for our basic survival. Mm. So the word akinomage when akin means earth, nomage means to point towards and take direction from. And of course, we find relations of domination when we look at the world around us beyond human. And there are things that we distinguish as well as analogize into our world. And that requires interpretation. And that interpretation requires one another and requires how different plants and animals are interacting in that place as we draw on them to engage in that power of interpretation as well. And so the idea of a kinomagewen doesn't let us off the hook, but it shows us that plants are a part of our reasoning, a part of our 
understanding and the idea that we I think hope for here is to see that plants are moving, that are they are mobile, that they are dynamic, and that the sense of the scale on which they move, of course, is different than the way. But in, in other words, their scale is vast, much broader than we will ever imagine, uh, given what we don't see with chemicals and roots, uh, et cetera. And so I really appreciate the question because it does say we learn by looking to the earth and taking direction from the earth. And we see the earth as being more dynamic and more complicated. And yes, we see the oppressions and the dominations that are there within different species, but also the ways that we find mutualities. And then we get engaged in that and do the hard work from our different perspectives to see how we can best facilitate sustainability in the context of all of those inputs. Mm. Yeah, I, I would like to add to what John just said a couple of tips on this way to, on the way we appreciate plant behavior, for example, right? So appreciating their behavior is something that pays off in a very particular way, because what I would recommend is not simply, for example, what I do, okay, I'm going to time-lapse plants because they are slow, I need to speed them up. In fact, I recommend people to not time-lapsing them and train their eye to appreciate their behavior by slowing yourself down. So, because sometimes the time-lapse footage itself becomes an artifact. We speed them up and then we put them on our hectic lifestyle. But if you slow yourself down and we know we can, Darwin did, for example, in, in observing plants or how they twine or around the pole or something, then we can slow down or train our eye to appreciate their behavior in their own time scale. So that's a good first step because that allows us to chill out and that's very much needed. Instead of speeding them up, slowing ourselves down because it, it's their temporal scale, the one that is genuine, is the one and only temporal scale in which their behavior is taking place. So it's important to study the behavior of any system in its own scale, the scale that matters to them. Otherwise, we won't make sense of the meaning making they are making sense of, right? And the second issue is that once we do that, if we slow ourselves down to appreciate planned behavior at their own pace, then we can also remind ourselves in this exercise of developing this very much needed you know, humility is to think that there is not evolution as such, but co-evolution. So things don't evolve. Things always co-evolve. And thinking that it is us at the will is the very same mistake that we make when we think of it as the one to pay attention to. So in a pattern of co-evolution in between a flower and a pollinator, we can help it. We think of the old, the, the pollinator, how smart it is. And we forget all the job that the flower is doing. So the pollinator couldn't be smart if the flower was not counterbalancing. So it's always patterns of co-evolution. And those patterns of co-evolution, if we take it to the extreme, happen to take place even when we speak of in our gut or when we speak of bacteria. So when we are speaking of patterns of co-evolution in between any two forms of life, that puts us all on the same page. We level, right? Leveling by thinking in terms of co-evolution and slowing ourselves down, I think those can be two helpful tips. Well, we always have a sign-off and I'm going to give Aziza the honor signing off. But I want to say one thing before that, which is speaking of co-evolution, I think Aziza is a, I've always thought she was a genius. 
but by putting you two in conversation, this is a co-evolutionary <laughs> podcast like none other I've heard. <laughs> you did not both agree all the time, which I thought was beautiful. There was so much interesting, not friction, but play between you both. And I just appreciate this conversation. I've learned so much precisely because of your generosity and your generosity toward each other and toward our audience. But Aziza, I'll let you do the well, honor. I have to say that was such a beautiful and eloquent way to sign off and captured everything that I was, I mean, each of your work is mind blowing individually and then together in conversation. I think it really just exemplified the emergent properties that come from having a relational conversation like this. So thank mm. you so much to both of you. And I think so much, I think we could continue talking forever. So much of what you just said right now about how we think of the pollinator as active and the plant as passive, I think it also, it maps onto so many of these cognitive and ideological dichotomies that pervade systems of thought. So that, for example, the way that men are thought of as active or, or as women are passive. Absolutely. That, Absolutely. Right, people are thought of as active. Nature is thought of as passive. It's this whole series of, of categorizations and hierarchies that bow, I think, also very deeply to these cognitive biases that you've identified in favor of locomotion, even though we know that, for example, the fetishization of locomotion is itself inconsistent so that, for example, indigenous people are pathologized for supposedly being nomadic, whereas colonizers are praised for being explored <laughs> and, and going out and conquering different territories. Uh, Can I just... example? Yeah. It is. I just would like to read these two quotes in case they find yes. their way somewhere into the podcast. But the, keep all of it. This is all gold. So the Buddha said, I, as a bee gathers nectar and moves on without harming the flower, its color, or its fragrance, just so should a sage walk through a village. Or in the Quran, and the Lord inspired the bee, set up hives in the mountains and in the trees and in what they construct. They eat of all the fruits and go along the pathways of your Lord with precision. From their bellies emerge a fluid of diverse colors containing healing for the people. Surely this is a sign for people who reflect. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that from within different traditions, we also find ways to engage in these conversations too. Thank I think you. so much of what you said speaks to how we can think of the entire world as a fabric of meaning and meaning making that we're all co-constitutively engaged in, which I think is such a beautiful vision. So thank you. Thank you so much for coordinating. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. So, so much fun. Thanks a lot. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.